Um, oh, there we go. Okay, welcome everyone. Uh, you are listening to Trinity FM. We are We Lads Big Problems, live here from Trinity Halls, Dublin today and today we are going to be talking about Myanmar, uh, the recent coup in Myanmar. Uh, we're going to be trying to get a better understanding of the situation by looking at its history, the history of ethnic conflict and you know the sorts of oppression that have occurred in the country. Um, what else do I need to say here? Hey, yeah, that's, um, we'll be looking at it, but, but the international reaction, uh, actions that could be taken and economic prospects for Myanmar, um, and a general overview of the situation there, I think it's the, the general mm. agenda for today. And again, as, as a preview, well not a preview, as a pre-statement, I don't know what the word for that is. Um, we are for we're free a freshers disclaimer. today. A disclaimer, <laughs> yeah. Um, unfortunately, Oshin can't make it today, so it makes us free freshers in Trinity College Dublin, who uh, began researching the issue about five days ago. We're going to try our best to... Five um, days? Jesus, you're prepared. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to try our best to give an accurate description of the situation, but if you are interested in learning more about the situation, then we recommend you do your own research and reading. Uh, we yeah, are. we'll be posting, if you check on the Spotify, we'll be posting some of the readings we did for this. If you want to take a look at them, go into any more detail on any part of the discussion we have today. Um, but with that, I think we're ready to go. All right then, Evan, would you like to chat to us a bit there about um, uh, about the basic history of Myanmar? Um, you know, the yeah. political history. Okay, well... So the basic history, right, uh, we're going to start from 1948 when Myanmar became an independent republic. Uh, it was previously under British colonial rule. And um, now, first first things first, we have to understand that Myanmar is a big, well, it's, it's a medium-sized country, but there's a lot of ethnic groups in Myanmar uh, beyond the, just the Burmese nationality, uh, which is kind of like, uh, we posted a map onto the Instagram story, if uh, anyone wants to take a look at that, it's... Uh, it's very informative and like picturing this in your head, but um, so nineteen forty eight becomes an independent republic, um, and it stays mostly democratic uh, right up to nineteen sixty two when um, a non a couple a few non Burman ethnic groups push for autonomy or federalism depending on who you talk to, and uh, putting that together that uh, like push for autonomy and federalism uh, alongside a weak civilian government. Uh, the military leadership stu- uh, stepped in and staged a coup d'etat in 1962. Um, then between 1962 and 1974, Myanmar was ruled by a revolutionary council headed by the, the, the head uh, of the army at the time. Um, and this is where the Burmese way to socialism comes in. Um, nearly all aspects of society were nationalised or brought under government control. And um, in 1974, a new constitution was adopted. Um, we might skip over some of that and just go straight to 1988. Um, until 1988, the country was ruled as a one-party system, right, with the Burma Socialist Programme Party at the at the head. But the military took control again in 1988 and established the SLORK, um, which uh, was military control again. So you can see there's a relationship here between the military and the um, and politics that's uh, that lasts up until today uh, with the recent coup that Lila will be going into later. Uh, interestingly, in 1990, um, oh, we see that, uh, actually in 1988, uh, political parties are no longer uh, illegal. Really? Right? So yeah. political parties in the country were just banned? Like, um, does that mean people could, you know, take part in politics individually, or does that mean that there was just one political party that was allowed? It was a one-party system, yeah. Okay. So it was a bit, a bit like how Frank was chatting about last week, and like the one, this party being part of the state, and uh, being an alternative power structure alongside the bureaucracy. It was very similar to that Soviet-style planning and the Leninist structure that they had. Um, we shout out there to Frank last week. Absolutely um, brilliant uh, episode, if anyone wants to give it a listen. But, um, so, we have... Um, in 1990, there was free elections held for the first time in almost 30 years. And the National League for Democracy, where uh, Aung San Suu Kyi comes in, uh, who... Um, won uh, nearly 80%, nearly four-fifths of the seats um, in in those first elections, right? And this is for a legislative assembly, right? Um, now, after uh, the National League for Democracy wins uh, the elections, 
the military um, the military government announces that, in fact, those elections weren't really for a legislative assembly. Instead, they were for a constituent assembly, which is going to draft a new constitution. Um, that's grand. I'm assuming they wanted they were up for drafting a new constitution. Um, then they broke the news that uh, it was the military government that was going to decide when they got to meet, and they just never decided to have them meet, and instead created a different national convention to formulate a new constitution, which lasted right up until 2008, right? So, um, um, just, I suppose, um, the next bit then is on the, um, on the 2008 constitution. And, yeah, like, how did this new constitution, you know, work? So why did, was the military uh, so desperate to, you know, not have Aung San Suu Kyi, like, make her own constitution? Why was it so desperate to form its own constitution? And then when it was implemented, what was on this constitution that, you know... Yeah, yeah, there was a, there was a big push for uh, democracy in, um, in, in Myanmar at the time, right? And also the, the military government was economically completely incompetent. Uh, that Between that uh, 1974 uh, to 1988 period, uh, Myanmar had become one of the most one of the poorest countries in the world, right? Um, and there was there was a feeling that like with a more democratic government they could get rid of Western sanctions and they could move towards better economic growth. And it was kind of a calculated risk taken on the behalf of the military to think that right will go for this um, this kind of uh, liberalisation of society, right? Um, now the 2008 constitution, right? They of course they didn't just give up power. That wouldn't be uh, like them now, would it? Um, the legislative, it's break, broken down to like legislative and executive branches, right? So legislative authority is um, in a bicommunal parliament. So there's like, there's two uh, houses of parliament. The Assembly of the Union is the general um, building. And then there's the House of Nationalities and the House of Representatives. Uh, three quarters of each chamber are directly elected. And the remaining quarter, oh, I should say were directly elected. This is all undone in the coup that Light is going to chat about. But it's important for understanding the context here. Uh, three quarters of the members were directly elected and the remaining quarter were appointed by the military. Conveniently, the barrier for constitutional change that you need to pass is three quarters plus one. So without the military on board, you can't make any constitutional changes. Uh, executive authority, again, the military maintained uh, power here. It rests with the president, who's elected to a five-year term and has an 11-member National Defence and Security Council. Um, and uh, the best bit is the army commander can name the um, can name the minister for defence. He can name the, the his own political uh, boss. Apparently, he can name him uh, as well as the minister of the interior and of border control. They have control of the police, intelligence services, border guards, as well as the armed forces. So they're guaranteed to maintain their own power. You know, no matter the situation. Is that Essentially, it? yes. Yeah. They gave up very little apart from. Um, given uh, essentially allowing the National League for Democracy into power. And I suppose their, their goal in going into power was to uh, have, create constitutional change and move, um, kind of engage with the military and move towards liberalisation of society. The, it was always said that like once they reach this mature democracy, the, the army or the Tapmadas, uh, they're called uh, and in, in Myanmar, that, that they would essentially see power to the democracy, which... You know, that's that's about as uh, realistic as you think it is. You know, mm-hmm. I, it's this interesting move to like improve their situation, their power, like uh, to hold on to power while telling the people that they're doing this in order to you know let the people have more power. It's this interesting sort of yeah faced kind of play, isn't it? Yeah, like they did. There was there was massive Western support in two thousand and. Um, Oh, in 2008 and 2011 when they moved towards democracy. And I don't fully understand this well enough myself. This is the disadvantages of uh, being with uh, three completely unqualified freshers. But <laughs> it was it was shocking at the time that like a country uh, that had such a long history of military rule moved so quickly to um, to a democracy in that way. Yeah, like everyone was really optimistic at the time, I believe, yeah. that the West saw it as this, you know... Wow, they're you know liberalizing the economy. They're taking all our Western values. Yeah, you know, yeah. You can think what you want about that, but um, the West saw it as generally a good thing. Yeah, I should mention uh, the army isn't just the army as well. The Tapmadas, they call them. Um, 
they have massive economic holdings in the uh, in the country as well. Yeah, they have investments, don't they, in the like um, in yeah. the biggest sectors such as tourism and like in uh, yeah in uh, oh, and exports, imports, kind of things like that. But uh, their two main uh, conglomerates that they uh, uh, have is the Myanmar Economic Holdings and Myanmar Economic Corporation, which are like legacies from that uh, kind of Burmese way to socialism, nationalization of. Um, transport and all these different um, areas of the economy. And um, just to give us a bit more context as to the history of the country itself, not even necessarily just the military, but you know, the country's cultural background and its the mm-hmm. sort of political drama there, like, um, do you want to tell us a bit about the ethnic conflict that has raged in Myanmar ever since it was decolonized? Yes, yes. Um, this, you know, this is where the map on uh, the Instagram store I think is really, really helpful for understanding the scale of this, right? Um, there have been, there's essentially been um, different internal conflicts, essentially civil wars in Myanmar continuously since 1948, which is the longest running civil war in the world, essentially, right? Um, and at the minute, um, there are essentially there's there are six different uh, groups and conflicts going on. Uh, there's the Kachin conflict between the Kachin Independence Army and the government. The this is this is a this is from two thousand and twelve now so this uh this list is is old news now but all these conflicts are still going on there's uh at that time there was already a war between um uh, groups representing the Rohingya Muslims which I'm sure we mentioned later uh and uh Rakhine State and Shan Lahu Karaman already groups in the eastern half of the country um there's there's a lot of conflict in um in, in Myanmar right and I suppose the the main cause of this was how since 1948, Myanmar has kind of struggled to form an, an identity that is reflective of all the ethnic groups in Myanmar. Um, so there's the Burmese ethnic group that um, lives kind of in the centre around the coast and around the uh, border uh, regions in Myanmar. Um, there's all, a lot of those ethnic groups have strong feelings of resentment towards the central government. And uh, they've pushed for autonomy, separation, uh, even just federalism. And um, I suppose you can say that, like, as much as identity comes into it, and the fact that there's no national identity, there's also constitutional and legal oppression uh, happening to these groups. So under that 2008 constitution we were talking about, um, or ethnic groups, uh, so, some ethnic groups aren't given uh, the same rights as Burmese citizens. Larger ethnic groups tend to be given more rights than smaller ethnic groups. Um, yeah, and I think this is really interesting because, um, like, uh, when Burma was colonized, like, um, when it was under British colonization, um, there was a sort of social hierarchy, um, where the British obviously at the top were at the top. That's they love to do that, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> the Brits, we love them, don't we? Mm. Um, but and there were Indians, Chinese, and Christianized minorities in the middle. And it's interesting that the Buddhist Burmese were actually at the bottom of this hierarchy. Um, And it's interesting to see how this sort of turned round when Burma gained its independence. um, Because they were repressed for so long that they... Uh, not necessarily that they saw it okay to um to oppress people and to like have a social hi- hierarchy where some groups are at the top and at the bottom, but it is like that's how it results. Uh, but yeah, it was essentially the creation of division within uh these within countries that were colonized tends to lead to a lot of division later on when independence is gained. I suppose is. Do you want to chat a bit about that, Lila? Oh yeah, I mean that's directly where the conflict between the Rohingya and the Buddhist, um majority comes from. I mean, the Rohingya sided with British colonists, um, while the Buddhists sided with Japan because they hoped that it would end the colonial rule. Let's see. Oh, yeah, no, it's, uh, it, it, it is a fascinating uh, history. Like, it's something that I had no idea about. And, like, embarrassed to say it almost, that, like, there was, I had no knowledge that there was such like a, such a sheer level of conflict going on in uh, Myanmar for And so it long. runs deep. Oh, I yeah, very no right, deep, yeah. And neither did I, and that, that's been the interesting thing about um, doing this show. It's every week I just, like, discover a thousand new things that I knew nothing about before. And that, that's why doing this show is so fun. It's, you know, I'm, yeah, yeah. like, we're learning about things that otherwise we would never hear about. Um, and do you want to chat about... Yeah, the, the peace process mm-hmm. in that um, has been... 
It's been going on. There's been attempts at uh, creating peace uh, within, within these conflicts since 1948, essentially. Uh, Suu Kyi, uh, the, or the previous um, leader in Myanmar, um, she, uh, she essentially, when she came into power in 2011, uh, she inherited what was uh, described uh, in one of the readings that we did as the world's most labyrinthine war, uh, peace process. Um, and it is an absolute disaster. Like It is shocking how bad this peace process is. Um, like uh, One of the uh, issues with the peace process is that it, it recognises um, just about eight armed groups which represent only 20% of Myanmar's guerrillas, uh, guerrilla warfare, right? Uh, which creates this kind of two-track peace process where you've got like dialogue with the peace process signatories, and then you have bilateral talks with uh, all the non-signatories. And then you've got all these ethnic groups that have uh, different, um, they've got different uh, interests, and um, some have certain grievances, right? But haven't created their own um, militia, right? They, haven't, they aren't armed. But because the government only um, the government and the army will generally only deal with uh, ethnic groups who are represented by a militia, there's an incentive created by the peace process for each ethnic group to develop its own militia. That's and just yeah, there's that's there's such you an think example. That was a better way of going yeah, about it. You really would. That's such like, an example of politics just going yeah. so badly and how different you know results can be from intentions. Yeah. And I mean, also that ties in directly to Suchi's kind of. Um, response to the Rohingya situation as well, where she has to take a step back from it. And the international parties all agreed, like, she is defending an ethnic cleansing. Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, it's it's an incredibly complex situation. Like, I won't pretend to have any uh, excellent understanding of it. You know, it's been going on for 70 years, and there's six major ethnic groups involved. Um, and, like, uh, some, of the, some of the interesting... Uh, like the 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 army right the Tapmadaw has an interesting uh, role in this as well, because they um they act kind of independently of the government of the elected government. So you saw that in the Rohingya situation right. where um it was essentially it was an independent decision made by the army to go in and uh, essentially commit that ethnic cleansing of Rohingya Muslims. Yeah, I mean this has been going on since the eighties. Oh the yeah. Military versus. Like, ethnic groups. Uh, that peace process that I was chatting to you about before, whatever good it did, was completely undermined um, in, th- in uh, 2018 when the Tavmada engaged in uh, armed conflict with two of, the, two of the biggest signatures signatories to the, to the peace process, right? Um, again, they, uh, when the when our, um, predecessor to Song, um, Song Chi was uh, all uh, organizing this uh, peace process, the national, uh, the nationwide ceasefire agreement, right? Um, the army um, announced that six of the biggest uh, oh, militias wouldn't be allowed to join it, um, and so they make it. They've made it very hard, right? I'd, I suppose I didn't really introduce this properly, but the Tapuja sees itself almost as like a guardian of Myanmar and of all of the unity in Myanmar, and as fundamentally opposed to any kind of federalism. So they are naturally politically disposed to not engaging with these uh, groups unless it's the only option. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a bit there about the history of Myanmar. Um, I hope I think Evan covered it very well there. He's done his research. Um, you could do a PhD and ethnic like on the ethnic oh, conflict in yeah. Myanmar and still have absolutely like just only know a tiny bit of the scale of it. it it's such a complex sort of web of conflict and yeah, there are so yeah. many dimensions to it that you could sit there and study it for 40 years of your life and you'd still not have a proper grasp of it really yeah like i, I think it's something that actually would be it would 100% be best learned by experience and um uh, if you want to listen to any burmese activists um oh yeah definitely um i think there's a sophia event uh in the works there is a Sophia event in the works, actually. Um, we shouldn't spoil it yet. It's not definite, but um, we'll hopefully have someone come in to chat about the situation in Myanmar, an expert on the subject who will be... Well, far... They know more than we do. <laughs> they yeah. will know more than we do. Um, so, yeah, that's the... Like, it is, it is an incredibly complex situation. 
but it's important to understand for understanding anything else in Myanmar because I think there's a problem that comes in a lot of like discussions about other countries, especially um, especially from like our point of view as Westerners, where we just assume that all the countries are the country and that it has its own interests. Do you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, this is obviously uh, something completely different. You know? Yeah, it's it's very easy to take um to take you know shows like this and. God, I might be guilty of doing it from time to time, but to, to look at a country as just a country and to not properly recognise yeah. the different facets of the country and the fact that it's, you know, there are different divisions and different wants in the country. And that's that's something I think as Westerners we really need to yeah. try to focus on is understanding that it's not just Myanmar slash Burma. It's, you know, like, it doesn't have its own set of interests, really. There's just so many social groups in these countries, the same as our own, that um, have very different wants and needs. And anyway, Lila, you're here today to chat to us a bit about the coup uh, itself and what has, you know, what's happened in the last right. month or so. And would you like um, to go on? I mean, I think Evan's points are a perfect segue into it, seeing as it's all about the military. Um, so I want to start with the end of January 2021, where the um, election has ended and the NLD has won by a landslide. So we should mention there was an election last year. There was year. an election last year. Um, and... Led by Suu Kyi, they won by a landslide, um, and it was a fair election. Then the military released a statement threatening a coup if the claims of election fraud were not properly investigated. So it's just um, like, oh, we're going to hold a proper, you know, free yeah. election. Free oh, and fair election. Oh, we've Sounds that familiar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The results didn't go the way I wanted? Oh, well, you know, mm-hmm. it wasn't a real election then, was it? Exactly. So the Electoral Commission released a statement that they had found no signs of fraud or tampering when the re- and the results were finalized which, of course, the military were not big fans of. So, um, the dawn of the morning of February 1st, all the high-profile leaders of the NLD were arrested, and they still remain under house arrest, even though, I believe it was two days ago, they said that they were going to release Suu Kyi, and they didn't, um, which is, you know, yeah. concerning. So, the coup was took place right as the parliament was meant to open, so the, mili- the military junta that they put into place actually removed 24 ministers from their current positions. 24 24, ministers. and replaced them with 11 military leaders instead. Yeah. Right um, off the bat. Yeah, yeah, no, it's like... Uh, definitely there's... The relationship that the military has with uh, the government in Myanmar is... it's For me, it was, it was something I found hard to understand a, a long time ago before I really got into politics with, like, how militaries could have political roles. Right, it was so crazy uh, to me finding out the military we, yeah. has seats in parliament. I mean... Yeah, like, they have seats in parliament. They've been uh, inextricably linked with yeah. the development of Myanmar and, like, uh, the identity, the political identity of the country over the last... Uh, right. since, since 1948, really. Yeah, and I mean, I was reading... Um, I think it was from the BBC, oh, but no. don't... I've lost our internet connection. Oh, it's back. I hope you can hear us. We apologize for that um, brief loss of internet Paul's connection. Wi-Fi is um, shoddy Actually, at best. That was my hotspot. Oh. Anyway, sorry to Never mind. Well, it's all Ryan's fault. Name <laughs> <laughs> um, the phone company 48. They're actually mm-hmm. great. I would highly recommend. If they want to sponsor us, I mean, we're not saying no. Um, <laughs> anyway, go on there, Lila. Anyway, um, so it comes as no surprise then that as they've lost seats and popularity over the years, uh, they've wanted to regain that power, so they obviously just completely replaced most of Parliament with with their own. Um, so they justified these actions um, using the 2008 Constitution that everyone was talking about, which obviously affects Suu Kyi directly because they said that you can't have spots higher up in office if you have non-Burmese spouse or children, which um, okay. the BBC was saying she does. So they also said that they found illegally imported walkie-talkies in her residence, and that's what they used to arrest her. <laughs> illegally imported walkie-talkies. Walkie-talkies. Oh, no. is what they're using for house arrest, along with obviously saying that she and others broke COVID protocol as well, of course. Oh, um, of which course, is where of COVID course. plays into this. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I do think mm-hmm. it's interesting that you said, but uh, one of the laws that they used to remove her was that she had non-Burmese uh, I believe her spouse, yeah. Yeah, which is... It uh, comes back to the the level of exclusion within the constitution of other ethnic minorities within Myanmar. 
you know, it's it's deeply ingrained into the way the country is run. Exactly. And that's what leads to so much ethnic conflict and instability. Yeah, it is a country built on exclusion. And, well, I mean, really, we can blame the British the for that one. Yeah. anyway, yeah. yeah like, no, you can't with the division there. It like, mainly stems from... From British colonialism. I think you can 100% say that was the Brits' fault because they created, you know, divisions in the first place. And now just division and exclusion is so just... Um, 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 ingrained into the culture, the political culture in Myanmar is and like it's it is that um that's what's led to so much in terms of um so much conflict is the idea that like people the these ethnic groups feel that they can't speak to each other or they can't uh, discuss because there's so much deep-seated grievances and there's this kind of um essentialist notion that like they're warring tribes you know that have been at war forever it's kind of that... Yeah. that it seems like there's no end inside. Yeah, it's like yeah. an intractable conflict is how it's exactly. perceived. Which, God, I hope it's not. <laughs> I hope it's not, but I, really I mean, with the military in power currently, they've held a state of emergency for a year. So this could go on for who mm. knows how long. And I mean, the effects that's going to have on ethnic groups that they specifically target yeah. are just going to be insane. Mm-hmm. And Lyda, what has been the internal and international response to this coup in Myanmar? What you know, like what what? How have the people reacted? And how have other countries right. reacted to this? So Suu Kyi wrote a letter that was uh, released by other NLD members who hadn't been arrested, and she urged the public to go to the streets and protest, which they have. Um, of course, like as we saw over the summer in America as well. Uh, those have been responded to very poorly by the police and military, <laughs> where they've been shooting... Which sub- are the same thing. Which are the same yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Surprise, surprise. Literally. Literally, in, in Myanmar, they're the same thing. Um, they have been shooting live rounds at people. A woman was shot in the head. We don't oh, know if Jesus. she's going to survive or not. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's gotten... I mean, it escalated so quickly. Like, mm-hmm. people were out in the streets, not day one, but... Day two and three, automatically, everyone was out there. The whole country is in protest. The, I mean, the security forces became very worried about yeah. their position in Biden. Yeah. That, that's what I mean, it took them a few days, but now, I mean, armored vehicles are rolling out all over the country. They've ended up going directly to power plants, which a lot of people believed was to shut down the power in different states, which is obviously very concerning. Um, mm, they've done this in the past, I believe. Um, they have shut off internet yeah. and power for certain areas that have um, ethnic minorities yeah. in them that have, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah actually, yeah, spoke out against them. Mm-hmm. And I should mention that they have actually put a block on Facebook, WhatsApp, and other messaging groups, and for a day completely shut down the internet. Mm. Um, they reverted that after in certain within, within certain, certain regions, which regions, yeah. makes it very hard for the state to ever be perceived as you know a fair dealer yeah. in, in in these conflicts. Exactly. Um, I mean, they shut down the internet completely for a day, which obviously resulted in the largest protest that they had seen from (laughs) this coup. Um, And they they reverted that, but all these messaging sites are still blocked. So it's just like the situation in Hong Kong where they have to communicate in different ways and, you know. Yeah. No, that's... um, So, uh, yeah, you were uh, talking then about, um, like, the effect that this has had within Myanmar. So what would you Mm -hmm. say about outside Myanmar then? Right. I mean, we were talking a little bit before we started about the analogy of like the bad mother, you know, just waving a finger and kind of letting (laughs) it go. I don't want to... Not the UN waving a finger. Not the UN waving a finger. I don't want to be like um, pro-American intervention or anything because that definitely could have some really negative effects for the country as a whole as we've seen in other situations. Mm -hmm. Um, But the UN, EU, and 11 other nations have called out um, Myanmar and the leader of the military against this. Um, it was Joe Biden's first, uh, you know, global mm. press thing was about this. Yeah. Um, of course, um, the U.S. has stated sanctions, have put <laughs> sanctions in place. Surprise, surprise. They I actually, that's um, going to affect. I was reading a bit into that, actually, not to spoil my later section. <laughs> but um, the U.S. has at least so far refrained, which is out of character for the U.S., from placing e- like economic sanctions Right. Uh, on the country mm-hmm. um, instead they've placed sanctions on the leaders themselves um, but yeah. I think the important one that and the Biden administration at least has done is the uh, the Myanmar military actually has one million dollars worth of, or one billion I, I can't it was a lot of money it was a lot, <laughs> a of, lot money, of money yeah. um, uh, like stored in the US and the Biden administration has actually made moves to um, to block the military from claiming these funds and they have also the sanctions they've imposed they've have stopped exports to the Myanmar government 
um, mm-hmm. during this okay. crisis. Japan has actually been doing the same thing. I mean, there's some co- there's some companies within the country that um, have been working actually with the Myanmar military. Didn't do tons of research on how that works, but, you know, um, and they've completely pulled out of agreements with them and everything. So it is really trying to push back economically. Yeah, like that's this interesting idea in that you really want to push back economically, but not in the same sense that we have done, that in the, the past, West has done yeah. in the past, in which, you know, I mean, the people have just lost their democracy. You don't want to take their money away from them too. Uh, you, you want to um, impose economic sanctions on them that affect, that really, you want them to not affect the people. And yeah. you just want... You want the military to hurt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. To be honest, like, um, economic sanctions, like, they don't have to do much anyway. No. You no. know, it is, it is almost a cop-out foreign policy yeah. from mm-hmm. Western leaders. It's, it's like a, it's a, it's, it's signaling. It's a saying mm-hmm. that, like, we don't approve. Yeah. But we're not actually going to do anything major to help the situation. Yeah, like, um, as Lila said earlier, we were joking about um, a parent wagging the finger, and that's what it feels like the UN has been in this, yeah. and it is in many situations, and it's, it's, it's like a mother sitting there, and the kid's, you know, destroying someone's home or something, and the mother stands back and she says, no, Timmy, don't do that, we don't like that, and does nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> that feels yeah. like what the UN's response it's, to this has been. No, definitely, um, like, I suppose, is, is there any scope for any other kind of international action or like apart from uh intervention by like more stronger sanctions or sanctions against particular members of yeah like the of the regime high up in the regime um it's hard to see what can be done i mean this um, is what's so concerning about it is like mm-hmm. sanctions are the only way that i know of of yeah. you know trying to say and do something about this without with like military actual intervention, intervention without we... military intervention which we definitely I mean, I would say don't want. Well, there's no way, um, no matter what your opinion of military intervention in general is, yeah. okay? There's no way that military intervention could help this situation. You've got so many ethnic conflicts going on. Like, yeah, obviously. There's, there's, there's groups siding with the military, groups not siding with the military. It's just going to be a disaster. There are too happens. many divisions, exactly, yeah. for a military to come in like the U.S. tends to do and mm-hmm. do anything. And so even if you did typically want that, I, you shouldn't want that for this situation. I don't right. think you should want that. I don't I think there are very few situations that weren't that there incredibly weren't that few. at all. Exactly, because mm-hmm. the negative effects are only going to really hit the people. The people, especially uh, the you know ethnic minority groups. Yeah, like um, I had a point. I had a really good point, and I've <laughs> just it's gone out of my head. Um, but yeah, like it's. I suppose it comes back again to that the politics of division within Myanmar, like the fact that the, it, it's, it's worrying that uh, this coup has taken place because the Tapmaja have a horrible uh, re- track record in terms of responding yeah. to these ethnic divisions and conflicts. They're usually the ones causing them, actually. It, um, <laughs> yeah. It's cre- the way I see it, I, I'm not an expert in this, but I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a move used by political elites a lot. It's creating divisions and, you know, as long as the society is divided, I mean, you see it in all sorts of political literature, mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of what a lot of political theories are based on. As long as the society is divided, then the elites can maintain their power. Now, um, you know, I wonder what literature that came from. If anyone here is familiar with it, but um, no, what I, the point I want to make is, if anyone was listening to our um, democracy in Africa episode two weeks ago, we came to the conclusion that um, while the West shouldn't, in you know, step in. Um, without asking people, that the West has a duty to offer help and support to people to in countries with less economic clout to um, to support them, and but that becomes really interesting here because obviously there's nobody to ask or no you know there's nobody to ask hey do you want support like you can ask there's so um, many groups you can't yeah you, know. like yeah you can ask African leaders hey do you want any support from us what can we do for you to help you you know that that's a, a right. good sort of foreign it's, policy but you can't do that here it's not democratic Myanmar versus the military yeah it's they're not inextricably like linked like, the actions themselves have to come from within the the Burmese government and it's hard to see like uh, like some of the things that I was looking at like possible ways that you could go about reducing the temperature of conflicts in those border regions um, would include, you know, like redrawing up the peace process and making it so that uh, the government becomes a little more federalist and a little more responsive to these ethnic minorities 
and re- recognizes the grievances of ethnic minorities, even when they don't have organized armed militias, um, and like recognizing that kind of a thing. But it's I think that's that's what the NLD wanted, the National League for Democracy wanted. That's the, the end goal, I believe. Um, but the military has so much economic power that they can just prevent this from happening, right. and they have done so. And Ida, do you want to chat any more about like what have been the recent developments in the coup? You know, in recent days. Right. Well. Um... So, I mean, the military has completely seized all power. They've tried everything they can now to, to maintain that way. Um, and obviously the NLD is going to respond negatively to this. But uh, they've suspended all laws that restricted security from detaining suspects or searching through private property, which is going to lead to more NLD raids and um, more house arrests. And the military is just going to maintain all that power. Um, I mean, I talked all the stuff in, in the recent actions section has been kind of majorly discussed. I think the main thing we have to be looking at here is the effect this is going to have specifically on the Rohingya, seeing mm-hmm. as the military has been the persecutors of them for so long. And do you want to chat a little bit about, because um, we chatted about what's happening to Rohingya in China right. um, the last year. Would you like to chat about what's been happening in Burma to Rohingya Muslims? Yeah. So, I mean, this dates back so far with the divides between the, the Buddhist majority and the Rohingya minority, but the, the main start of it was 1982, where, when the government passed the Citizenship Act, which um, recognized 135 ethnic groups in the country, which is a lot. The Rohingya was not on the list. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. So they're essentially an undocumented group of people in a country. They have no citizenship, no land rights, Nothing. There's over one million of them. They can be traced back to the country to the 15th century. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, a dimension that I find interesting about this is that um, the Burmese, the threat the Burmese feel from the Rohingya in, like, in their geographical uh, situation, because Burma is surrounded by majority Muslim countries, and it seems that the Burmese are so determined in Burmese nationalism mm-hmm. in, you know, and just holding on to their identity that they feel a sense of threat from their hanging. Yeah, and I mean, this is something that um, that has kind of come up a lot in the conflict is the government pushes the Rohingya, or the military pushes the Rohingya out of the country. Most of them flee to, um, to Bangladesh, but when they return, they're seen as illegal immigrants, which, I mean, as we know from a lot of other countries, are, you know, seen, treated usually shown, poorly. treated incredibly poorly, shown with a negative light, um which obviously has a horrible effect on them. Um, and, I mean... And essentially uh, dehumanizes... Dehumanize them completely. ...in the eye of the public, uh, yeah. which allows for that kind of... Like, with the intervention of the army then mm-hmm. and the ethnic cleansing. And the issue is that there's no way for them to push back. I mean, in 2016, uh, they formed a small group, uh, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army, which coordinated small attacks on border police stations and resulted in 12 police officer deaths. Uh, which, I mean, you can't necessarily blame them for when they've had no way to push back against this for yeah, it's, generations. Yeah, it's spiral effect um, about Yes, it. exactly. Yeah, it, and the, the retaliation from that was, I mean, insane. It was 400 deaths and 400,000 sought refuge in Bangladesh. Yeah, there's, a, there's a long history of uh, spiral that spiral, like that yeah. occurring, particularly in Myanmar, where es- ethnic groups would militarize against the government and then other ethnic groups would militarize for the government. For the government, and, yeah. And uh, then other ethnic groups, uh, especially in Rakhine State, where there's like a big conflict between the Rakhine uh, minority and the government, uh, non-Rakhine uh, or ethnic groups are also militarizing now because they can't depend on either the government or the, the Rakhine militia for, uh, for support or for security. So they have to find that themselves. Yeah, and this is how the military keeps getting away with it, is that there's so many groups conflicting here that you know when you've been taught and conditioned that this one group specifically is violent and is illegal in your country you're tending to you know more there's, likely sway that way there's another facet of that yeah and that's um the land that the Rohingya Muslims uh, typically occupy in Burma is a um it's a very barren land it's there's you know there there hasn't been much investment into it like and I think that's intentional from the Definitely, government probably yeah. Um, there, there isn't much economic opportunity. And so it seems that a lot of the Burmese nationals see the Rohingya as an economic burden 
they don't, you know, they don't produce anything. They don't work as much as us, you know, like they, they yeah. see them as a completely separate group and as an economic burden. And I, I think the way that um, the elites have managed to create this vision of them just by, you know, investing less in areas that have Rohingya majorities yeah, is... a vicious cycle. Yeah. yeah. And also, I think the situation, um, not to get too, you know, off topic, but it's very, it's a bit comparable, we were chatting about, to um, Israel and Palestine in that, you know... Um, as this vicious cycle, I think Israel and Palestine is a good example of it in that um, Israel represses the Palestinian people. And then, you know, if you're oppressing people for long enough and if you're, you know, treating them badly enough... There's going to be some pushback. You're, you know, there is going to be pushback. And I, I think a lot of elites notice, they, you know, yeah. they use this as a strategy. And the, at the second that there is even the tiniest bit of pushback, it's all over the mainstream news. It's all chatted about in parliaments and all the rest. <laughs> and they use that as a justification to oppress this ethnic group yeah, like, forever. Yeah. And it's this cycle. And I don't know, you know, what the right thing to do there is if you are an oppressed minority. Exactly. Because... And this is what's so concerning about the military rule right now is that with a state of emergency for at least a year, they can push that another year and another year. If, if nothing happens, it's, it's then a coup and they've, it's a coup. They've done and it well. They've done yeah. it well. It's, it's honestly impressive and kind of shocking. Um, but the effect that this is going to have on the groups that they've been persecuting for decades is, is the magnitude of it is going to be insane. Yeah. Um, I suppose I'll chat a wee bit about my section, which is it, it's less about the conflict between ethnic groups and just mm-hmm. more about what the situation for people living in Burma in general is right now. Um, it's since 2011, there's been this um, goal for liberalisation of the Burmese economy. Um, the world, the West at least, sees it as incredibly successful. And I think I would be inclined to agree, you know, no matter what you think of markets and you know what you think the end, you know, goal of markets is or what the end like yeah the end point of markets will be um since you know opening up the country to foreign investment and all the rest poverty rates have dropped from 56 percent in 2011 or no i think that was 2008 maybe um to it was 24 percent in 2017 now of course you could look into the legitimacy of these figures but it was from i believe a un source so i'd be inclined to believe it i would be inclined to believe it and I, i think that is inherently you know a good thing so like until up until the pandemic, they they had that like if things were improving, you know, living standards in the country in general were improving. They weren't improving, you know, minorities and women weren't seeing these sort of improvements, which is a very important part. Um, I, yeah, no, the West has been incredibly optimistic about economic growth over the next few years and about the reduction of poverty rates and all the rest. Um, but an interesting thing in a report I read was that human capital in Myanmar is so limited and so, I mean, the word I'm going to use, like, it's just crap. <coughs> oh, Evan's choking to death. Hold on. Um, <coughs> yeah, okay. If Don't he dies, bad. we won't miss him. <laughs> oh, to die It'll on be two wee lads. <laughs> <laughs> two down. We lads, big go. problems. <laughs> um, no, but it's that because of this culture of exclusion in Myanmar, the human capital is just, it's not up to power. Um, like there's ex- social exclusions based on gender and of, as we've talked about many social exclusions based on ethnicity you know certain ethnic minorities can't work certain jobs women can't work certain jobs in fact I've got a the LGBTQ community especially yeah. also I mean mm-hmm. you found an interesting bit from the yeah, economist okay. about that completely off topic, off topic here, but, but interesting the point. LGBTQ plus uh, community in Myanmar um, have essentially because they've uh, faced so much oppression as LGBTQ people face everywhere in the world um, what's actually developed is kind of like uh, they've developed their own language essentially it's kind of if you know like Ulster Scots it's, it's essentially in that same area where it's like it's almost comprehensible to, to non-speakers yeah. but it's still distinguishable enough mm-hmm. that they essentially can communicate with each other in completely uh, secretive ways which prevents which is an interesting response to, um, to oppression and discrimination Mm, and it's completely off topic, yeah. but it's sorry to sidetrack you, but I thought it was a fun, interesting point it's to bring up. It's an interesting story. I was actually just wondering, maybe would you all find it more entertaining if we just solely spoke in Ulster Scots when we were doing the radio show? Vote now on your phones. Give a thumbs up if you would like us to only speak in Ulster Scots. <laughs> oh I have to say, I would not be coming back for the show if that was the case. <laughs> but um, no, I don't have a white pill of Ulster Scots in LA, you know. <laughs> 
It's, it's actually in the 2008 constitution. It refers to women primarily as mothers. Um, there are laws that discriminate women on grounds, especially on grounds of ethnicity and within ethnic groups. Like ethnic groups or like certain ethnicities are treated poorly, but um, women in these ethnic groups are especially discriminated against. And the, the situation for them right now is just, well, it's horrible. Ridiculous, yeah. Um, but there is a part in the constitution that states that nothing in the section shall prevent the appointment of men to positions that are naturally suitable for men only. That's in the constitution. It says that there are positions. So a, it says that there are positions that are suitable for men only, and mm-hmm. b, it says that women will never be women will never them. be elected to them. Yeah. And that you know, there's a lot of sexism in. It's actually interesting as to how um how they would have responded without you know would they have used this as an excuse to keep um Suki out of power if, you know, they didn't have the whole, oh, she has a baby that isn't Burmese. Right, it like, definitely does play a part in that. It, sure. it feels like a sort of, you know, maybe that was actually yeah. what they had in mind when writing the Constitution. Yeah, it's definitely, like, um, there's a lot of uh, ingrained sexism in, um, in from the, in, within the Constitution, within the laws and the legal, uh, the legal framework. Uh, much the same way there's much uh, ethnic discrimination as well. Mm-hmm. Like um, Myanmar, um, it, it just rates terribly in all the social studies for gender equality. Um, for example, it ranks eight out of nine countries measured for gender equality in East Asia and the Pacific. Which you know, I mean, it's not exactly a high bar there, is there? No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and as well, just to, like to show exactly how bad it is, the labor force participation for men fifteen and over in Burma is 82%. Um, but the labor participa- uh, force participation for women, 15 and over, is 47%. That's, yeah. you know, that's almost half. And also, I think I, we should specify, um, because we haven't said it yet this episode, right. Myanmar and Burma are the same country. When we yeah. chat about Myanmar and Burma... Yeah, they're mm-hmm. both acceptable names mm-hmm. for the... It was previously, it was a, from 1948, uh, it was uh, called Burma and... At, one point, um, it I it might I think it was the nineties, uh, when they uh renamed the country to uh Myanmar. It's important to state that the military renamed oh, it, yes, which the, is why a lot of political figures now still mm-hmm. call it Burma as a you know response to that. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, but I went into detail earlier about just how Rohingya are economically oppressed. I mean, they live in one of the poorest areas in the country, and that's a direct result of a lack of investment from the government into areas mm-hmm. with, you know, Rohingya majorities. Um, also, just chat a wee bit more about the future of the country. It, it's been terribly hit by the uh, coronavirus pandemic. It's, it's one of the worst hit in Asia, I believe, or at somewhere. Um, but it's also one of the most disaster-prone countries. And uh, they say it's the third most um, vulnerable country in the world to climate change, which is... Yeah. Oh, which, I mean, I'm not oh, terribly geez. surprised by, just based on location, I mean, with mm-hmm. um, surrounding Asian countries being so high with pollution yeah. rates as well, it's no it's no major shock. Um, but that's not, um, that's not a good uh, podium to be on. No, really. especially when climate change does directly affect... Um, minority and poor groups. But exactly, yeah. the worst. Like, um, you really... I hate to have all these, you know, sort yeah. of pessimistic... Not to be a Debbie Downer um, or anything. And but... even to move on uh, to some... And another thing that's to do with that environmental aspect that I just came across when uh, researching this, uh, there's a big difference between Chinese and Western uh, investment in Myanmar. And one of the issues for uh, Myanmar environmentally is that um, the the way they have their um, oh, uh, tender set up um, essentially makes it much more difficult for um, Western firms to invest as opposed to Chinese firms. And uh, while that's there's nothing inherently wrong with that in itself, um, the Western firms tend to be... Um, oh, have regulations from their uh, from their parent country about environmentalism, and they're also more susceptible to um, oh, what's the word public pressure about mm-hmm. uh, environmentalism and the environmental effects they have. Um, like this is this is another area where the army and the government essentially kind of clash, 
where they are uh, the government uh, making statements or made statements when there was a government that wasn't the <laughs> army um, made statements um, regarding this saying that like essentially yes investment's always welcome but it has to be environmentally friendly and it has to like um, it has to respect the the local areas mm-hmm. you know there's stories of um, of like dams being built that weren't properly uh, wasn't properly thought about what was going to happen downstream with uh, poor farmers on the on the riverbank and um, things like that, where um, essentially there's this, it's it's made it much harder for firms to come in and invest responsibly, and it's opened up to a lot of firms that want to go in and won't don't have to care about the repercussions essentially, mm-hmm. just on purely financial yeah. basis. Yeah. And do you think with the military empowered that's gonna increase? Uh, probably. Um, Sorry if you couldn't hear us there for a minute. Uh, I think we lost internet connection again. We love Trinity Hills. Um, I hope you didn't miss too much. And go on. Sorry. Well, I was just asking Evan if he yeah. thought that you know, with the military being in power now, um, if he thinks more firms that are less likely to care about environmental okay, aspects yeah. of it are going to come in. It's yeah. That's probably um, like. Yeah, there's always there's always the element where like um even even dictatorships and military governments and things like that do still have to care about public opinion right and where it's egregious they probably won't go ahead with things like that but as as a long term future it doesn't look too good uh like the the issue with public opinion and climate change is that if the public aren't seeing you know yeah. real horrors and not properly educated mm-hmm. on the subject then they're not going to you know really care mm-hmm. about yeah it's 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 probably um it's it's not it's not one of the it's it's a poor problem for democracy to have to tackle mm-hmm. essentially because it's, uh, it's also um i i think climate change now is providing the biggest challenge to capitalism in our age mm-hmm. and that businesses are built for profit they're not you know we, we rely on businesses for so much of our infrastructure and all the rest. They're not built for profit. And unless we can think of, you know, some amazing innovative way for, you know, businesses to really profit off climate change, then no, to profit off the, you know, prevention of climate change, yeah. then yeah. we've lost internet connection. God damn it. Sorry, the internet is going. But um, no, unless like you can find some mental incentive for business, you know, profit incentive for businesses to prevent climate change, then they won't. And I think it would be incredibly difficult to find that sort of profit, you know. Yeah. I I think that's why capitalism, while it's been good for one or two countries, possibly like it it is failing globally. That's a whole other episode. That's a whole other episode. We could could go Um, into that. I think Um. what we call it there. Uh, Yeah, I think that's... uh, I mean, that's been We've a, a covered all the aspects of it, yeah. Yeah, uh, between ethnic conflicts, um, or the, the recent coup. Um, I know we didn't go too in-depth on the Rohingya Muslims and the ethnic cleansing there, but I feel like that's something that would need its own treatment in and of itself. And mm-hmm. I think that group deserves... Yeah, uh, yeah. I think yeah. someday we will do an episode Definitely. purely There's on Muslims internationally, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you all very much for listening. We really appreciate all your support. You're so brilliant to us. Really, you spoil yes. us. Um, we are We Lads Big Problems at um, Trinity Halls, Dublin. Yes. And just thank you very much. Goodbye.